welcome to an episode of P2 Podcast Blues' Solo Harrison Podcast, where we talk all things Solo Harrison. Now, today I am joined by my co-host, obviously, Martin Quibell. Hey, Martin. Hey, Hudson. How are you doing? I'm alive. That's all we can ask. <laughs> and our three special guests, first of all, he is the co-host of When They Was Fab, which is one of my very favorite Beatles podcasts. Ed, how's it going in Houston? Oh, not too bad. We just got through a hurricane. Well, we're <clears throat> we're happy to be with you. We're? I'm happy to be with you. I don't know about the other guy, the imaginary one here next to me. <laughs> Ed, we didn't know you held podcasters captive. Oh, uh, well, I mean, you wouldn't have this show if it weren't for me. Right, Martin? That's so true. Very true. Very I wouldn't be here true. if you hadn't to uh, introduce me. Very true. And joining us we are the, well, first of all, we have the author of just about every Beatles book on my shelf. Um, the two George Martin biographies, sound pictures, and um, Ed, um, Ken, what's the name of the other one? I believe it's called Maximum Volume. Okay, that, that sounds right. Um, um, yeah. Solid State, the story of Abbey Road and the Beatles, um, uh, John Lennon 1980, co-authored, and then co-authored with Kid O'Toole, fan of the Beatles, and All Things Must Pass Away, Harrison Clapton, and other sort of love songs. And that's where um, the other guy comes in today, uh, he is the host of another very, very great podcast, Producing the Beatles, which, if you have not listened to, this man, I think he spends his entire life editing the show because it's so well edited. <laughs> that is what it I feels think... like, yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be I'm gonna be renting a, 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 a room in the annex of Abbey Road just so I can finish this thing, so... Yes. Hi. We we are very happy to be here. The royal we. Oh boy. We but we, we really are, and uh, and uh, and Jason is essential. I would agree. I'm an essential oil. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Magnesium or something like that. I don't know. Anyway. Entertaining man. Oh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very good. Ding. Very the award good. goes to Ed. Yep. Oh, yep. Someone has had their coffee and it has taken effect this Saturday yeah. morning. When you did my interview with, for my show, you weren't this energetic. And this is so different. Well, it's it's Saturday morning and I don't have to go to work. So. Yeah. Well, <laughs> good point. Wait, this so, isn't our full jobs? Doing podcasts and writing? What? If only. If only. Well, it is Ken's job. For the most part. (laughs) I think you're right. Yeah. He's he's figured that out. It is my full-time job. Well, yes. You you guys have got the uh, the dream worked out. Going to need some some, uh, career tips later on. Anyway, please continue. (laughs) (laughs) So... 
We're here to talk about the wonderful book, All Things Must Pass, and Assorted Love Songs. Now, I'm going to let Martin start us out with some questions. Oh, wow. In at the deep end. Okay. So, I find that with Eric... Um, there's there's a there's a certain sort of d dichotomy almost in Eric, where uh, especially in the 1960s, he was seen as a, um, a blues purist essentially. But I mean that that's the reason why, or perceivably, that he left the Yardbirds because they went more poppy. But then you find him working on material by the Beatles, who even he, he himself initially said we're a pop band so um do you think that's interesting um ken i sure do and and i've got to tell you guys um you know the more we look at this topic of of eric clapton i find that um he isn't enigmatic and i also i also think that like a lot of these folks uh and maybe all of us when we think and talk about our own lives he's an unreliable narrator you know he he wraps himself up in blues purism throughout the 1960s and uh, and really uses it as a weapon, uh, a cudgel for why he's leaving one band after another. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I don't buy it. I think he's I think he's full of it. And uh, it it really has a lot more to do with psychology and abandonment issues. Not that he doesn't love the blues and doesn't believe in the blues and and isn't um, and and in, you know he is indeed the guy who adores uh, that genre and becomes a student of it. There's just no doubt about that. But having said all that good stuff about him and his allegiance to the blues, he's also a psychological wreck, which he you know he freely admits all of these things. And I think part of the uh, and maybe I don't want to go too far saying that Eric's intelligent right now, but. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, I think part of having, right, yeah, I, I think part of having a, a kind of central or advanced intelligence is being able to keep th two thoughts, um, you know, in your mind at one time. And, and, and he does this, right? He understands that he's a psychological wreck, but he also loves the blues. Um, and both of those things are probably why he keeps leaving his bands, which he does so in a serial basis. I mean, he's probably quitting some band right now. <laughs> well, you know, you but make then, the good, but then, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go, ahead. go on, Jason. I was just going to say, Ken makes you know made the point that that you know he's he's leaving Blind Faith practically before. I mean, before their first live show, he's already looking like, oh, where else? You know, look at that Delaney and Bonnie group; they look pretty good. Um, just can't. He's, she's literally finding something wrong with the band. Yeah, while he's yeah, sitting yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, can you imagine Eric Clapton? Oh. Ed, ahead, oh, can you imagine Eric Clapton playing on some of McCartney's songs, particularly some of McCartney's later songs? Obla di obla da, featuring Eric Clapton. Oh boy! <laughs> no, that wasn't going to happen. But, but yeah, that, I, yeah I think we all agree. John, John was just joking. <laughs> he probably even knew that. Uh, it wasn't going to happen that that he, they had to get George back. Yeah, <laughs> probably. But, 
I, I mean, it's essentially, Eric, Eric was battling demons from from birth. Essentially, I mean, the, the his upbringing alone—that's that's that's an incredible story itself. So you can sort of understand how he's got that um, sort of psychology to him, and in a way. I could see why he'd be inspired to listen to the blues as well at the same time, because that would almost, you could almost see somebody with that sort of psychology being attracted to that sort of music anyway, because it, it, it would match his almost permanent um, attitude. That makes a lot of sense. And, you, you know, I mean, the blues did fulfill not just his love for the form, the musical form, but it also fulfilled, uh, you know, a, a very deep, empty space for him. It was something that he could call his own. I mean, there weren't a lot of, you know, when you when you're running around the primary schoolyard in those days, there weren't a lot of other kids who were just talking about how great the blues were. Eric was lucky when he would find one kid every now and then with whom he could hang and talk about the blues. There were just that few of them. Yeah, and, and and we all know that you know if you listen to what to say if you listen to some sad music when you are sad it can sometimes make you feel better because it gets that emotion out of you, which probably right. made him a happier person than after listening to that sort of music. And playing that would have you know has the same effect. So if, even if it doesn't oh absolutely heal, you know heal in the long term it it soothes you in the short term. So sure. <coughs> Yeah, I mean, like myself, Jason, you're a musician and and, and Ed as well, and we we all know that that that's what it does when you actually get the instrument out and you're playing that. It's almost it's almost like a sponge, the instrument that takes that emotion out of you, in a way. Yeah, it's very satisfying, and you know, I, I'm we're, I'm not at the level of Clapton, obviously, or George Harrison, but you know, just just to oh think, god, none of us are. You know, on a on a small scale, what for me, what that's like, uh, for them, it must've been, you know, just an incredible, uh, sort of transformative experience to be able to play that music. But, um, but then you've also got that interesting difference in the two of them as well, where, where that's the background of Eric, the background of George is very different where you've got, George has got this, upbringing with a with a very large family um and a very loving family as well but for some reason they just seem to hit it off with each other and sure it's one of the most yeah and that's one of the most incredible friendships in rock history sure and that reason is you know a reason that is united kids forever and that's the guitar right the guitar was the thing that brought them together. I I found these as as Jason and I do these uh, these various podcasts and other interviews. I feel validated that we chose uh, ultimately to have these biographical sections up front. We really were kicking ourselves like, are we going too far with this? But I think with these two guys, it needed to be there to explain why the hell they're you know, working together in the first place. And they are really um, a powerful study in opposites. Uh, 
Absolutely. Now, while it's necessary, uh, I, I, you know, I think the George Harrison piece is probably a little more well-worn than the Clapton piece. I was particularly uh, pleased to see how different your version of Clapton's upbringing was versus what we got in uh, Life in 12 Bars. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we, you know, we, we had the, uh, the great power of distance, I would say, you know, um, our, our, we, we, we were benefited by the fact that we were trying to tell stories in equal bites and trying to turn them, uh, into, um, a pairing. So, you know, if you're going to go that far with Eric, you've got to go that far with George. And, you know, one of the issues with these books, and, and I'm sure we've all encountered this, is, you know, we're all just absolutely geeked out on this stuff. And so, you know, sometimes it seems um, tendentious for us to experience it all again. But, you know, a lot of people who will pick up this book are not are not us, <laughs> you know, and they won't know that, you know, George grew up with Louise and Harry and they had a really convivial household and they created a, a loving space uh, in which he existed. So it was important for us to have that in there to sort of counterpoise the world of uh, the world of Eric. And then the world of Patty, that that was something which I, I'd read a little bit about in the past, but you get a whole different perspective on it here. Yeah, sure. And, and, and I, you know, I was, I was sort of in charge of this section, I guess, because Jason was conducting some really important work in other parts of it. And uh, I, I don't know that I realized the extent to which um, her life had been uh, bifurcated by many of these same same issues you know um if if we really bought into and spoiler alert I, if i may jason ken and jason do not but if we really bought into the great mythos of this uh this awe-inspiring love of patty and eric that was just so large and inspired an album blah 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 then you know she may have had a third of the book too but uh that simply from our perspective isn't the case No, they but she still have, gets a good, you know, 15, 20%, I would say. Yeah, I mean... The, uh, you know, you know maybe 15%. <laughs> go ahead, pal. Uh, well, I was going to say, you know, we go into her background, too, because it's, you know, as we have opposites with George and Eric, we have these sort of startling... I, did, I didn't realize either these similarities between her and Eric. Uh, and, I mean, you can you can paint with a very broad brush and say they're abandonment issues um and you know we as we do these interviews we have talked about not wanting to be armchair psychologists unfortunately we're sort of stuck in in that unfortunate position where we have to talk about these things and put them in some sort of context and that you know that uh, discovering that allowed us to to put this story into a new context if you don't Go on, go on, Hudson. Go on. Um, what was, like, who did you interview for the book, like, on a different note? Like, what were, like, the biggest names that you talked to? Um, so there was, 
Re we reached out to just about everybody that was alive. And uh, some people like Phil Spector and Jim Gordon are obviously were unavailable or unable to, uh, to do interviews for obvious reasons. But uh, Klaus Foreman, Alan White, uh, Ken talked to... Remember at one point I said, hey, could you ask Ken Townsend this? So he asked, I think you sent an email to Ken about something. Um, John Leckie was a very important interview. He was the second engineer on all of All Things Must Pass. And, wow. and he was 20 years old. It was his first big project. Uh, he'd started at Abbey Road in February. And these sessions began at the end of May. So he had really great recall. And I walked him through, just like, I, like everybody, I walked them through each session step by step. Session each day, um, I would talk about the songs recorded, and and this just brought up memory after memory for him. Um, and who else did you talk to, Ken? I'm, I'm blanking right now. Well, as I mean, in a, I talked to Alan. I guess a weirdly, sadly, com. Yeah, I talked to Alan. I talked to. Uh, uh, anybody I could get my hands on. I mean, in a weirdly comical way, we did try to talk to Phil Spector and, and I shared some emails with him, but he really was more interested in talking about how he uh, thought we should write about him being innocent <laughs> as opposed to, uh, <laughs> you know, this, this great album achievement. And uh, despite some prodding, he refused to leave that position. Although he did send me a book, which was nice. Um, uh, a true crime uh, book. It was kind of interesting, but uh, you know, I Hard guess what make. we tried to do was, yeah, uh, we tried to um, you know just fill in as many blanks as we possibly could uh, to um, to bring the story to life. Because as I always say, and and I know Jason and I are on the same page about this. You know, when you write these kinds of books, they're useless unless people can uh, you know be inspired during the listening of them to listen to all of this great music that we're all blessed with. So I find that if, if that's not happening, we're not doing the job. Right. You want to, so well, one thing that does bring up is the fallibility of human memory. Uh, Bobby Whitlock has a, a YouTube video where he mentions, Oh yeah. You know, I'm the one who suggested that Pete Drake come down and play on all things must pass. Well, that wasn't the case. You know, we now have day one demos where George is clearly alluding to, uh, you know, Pete Drake's going to be coming down and playing on this. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, this, uh, you know, J Jason really is our expert on, uh, on Bobby Whitelock. So I, I, I defer to him. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was actually going to say, so, so f first of all, how, did you actually portion out the roles for the writing of the book and the uh, the research? And how did it end up actually becoming a, a co-write? How did you both actually come to write the book together? <laughs> so um, we were introduced by uh, Mark Lewison via email years ago. And um, we knew we wanted to do something together. And we, we have a number of other irons in the fire too, but... Um, this one came about because I really felt like the story needed to be told. Now, Jason was very easy to convince as far as um, as far as the uh, the all things must pass half went. So it took me a little work 
uh, to bring the other to bring them around on on Layla. But I think what we've come to see and what we've come to agree on is this is really the making of a lot of 1970s rock just flows right out of this period. And so it's exciting and valuable for that reason alone. Yeah, I mean, Uh, but uh, we basically divided it, you know, Jason would take Bobby Whitlock and then I could do other stuff. (laughs) I think that. And and that was a full time job. Um, Yeah, so it's actually Jason wrote three fourths of it because of that. Right, right. intensive uh, information about inviting Pete Drake over. Um, yeah, I mean, I th- when Ken proposed this, I thought, well, hasn't this been done? Like, hasn't somebody written about this already? You know, it seemed like it should already be out there. And uh, then I started looking and realized that it wasn't. Layla has definitely been written about, um, but I think we have some new perspectives on that. Um, but Ken actually said, we were, we were talking about this one day, and he said, you know, these sessions are a blank. There's really... There's really, there's kind of, you know, there were these, these longstanding myths that we, that we had floating around for 50 years about, you know, how all things must pass have been made, but not anything in any real detail. So that gave us the opportunity to really go in and, and do kind of a day by day session breakdown of like, what happened on this day? How did, how did these sessions ebb and flow? Who was in charge? Who was contributing what, you know? And not so much to say that we, you know, we have a definitive list of who played on what because we openly admit that that's impossible. Um, yeah. Just because of how, you know, how open these sessions were. But, you know, just to go in and talk to the people who had not been spoken to, that was the main thing for me about interviews was Bobby Whitlock has gone on record, as we know, a lot, not just with his YouTube videos, but with his book. And there's a... if. If you're a member of the Steve Hoffman forum, you will you will know that I think 2008, he did this freewheeling Q&A on there where he just emptied his memory banks. So there's a lot of information from him, a lot from Clapton, tons of um, archival interviews from George Harrison himself. So all that stuff was sort of raw material to begin working with and sort of sorting out what's the truth from, you know, maybe misremembered stories, things like that. Um, and then, you know, digging deep into what hadn't really been put together, all the, all the material from magazines and, and music papers from over the years that had not been addressed, it hadn't been referenced. Um, that's the stuff that was really important because the, the known stories are out there and then how do we put this all together into a cohesive narrative? That's right. And, and, you know, and first of all, I think, you know, it just occurred to me when you said that, Jason, Bobby is probably the most quoted person on all of this stuff. Right. I mean, he is uh, he's been he's been out there a long time, um, sometimes somewhat consistent, uh, you know, about this kind of material. But the long and the short of it is, while some pieces can exist in some different places, um, you know, part of the importance of historical work is to tell the story in one convenient location so that people have a place to go when they want to read up on these kind of things. Right. And it's important to understand that, you know, there are many perspectives on these stories. There are many, many people involved. Yeah. And some people were more sober than others. 
during those experiences, so they will have a clearer recollection. Uh, not to name any names. Um, so you know, all 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 that is important to consider when you're putting together a, a project of this size. So and to get into the minutiae for a minute here, do we understand the story of I remember Jeep? Uh, you know what's in what's in the the big book and what seem the dates they seem to give in this business about oh they recorded it as a jam for Billy Preston it's like and then they left the tape box unmarked until John picked it up several months later how does that all work do you have any idea I'm still sort of sorting that out I mean we didn't have that for the book so that's something that you know we have to to look in for revision um but it does seem to have come out of a Billy Preston uh, recording session, a jam. And then John picked it up and John and Yoko were involved in mixing and it, it had this sort of uh, plastic Ono band uh, vibe to it, or, or not vibe, but a, sort of a plastic Ono band moniker slapped on it. But George, this uh, George. But the mood couldn't have been played at that point because it wasn't there yet. No, no. I think when when John picked it up. Yeah, that seems to have been overdubbed and taken. Wasn't it from uh, Electronic Sound? Is that the? uh... They figured out it was not. It's George playing a very similar piece. It's George playing a similar piece. Okay. Um, Yeah, but I mean, clearly George remembered this for some reason. This stuck with him, and he thought, "Okay, I want to put this in with the jams." that were recorded during All Things Must Pass. So something, I, you know, I don't have any insight into that, but something about this uh, resonated with him, and he thought that he could include this with the, you know, the other jams. Well, and apparently there was a contemporaneous news report that John was actually thinking of putting out that peace jam, you know, maybe as the third side of uh, 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 What's the New Mary Jane. Right. <laughs> yeah, and it's, and it's before... He kept the, trying before to get the, that out. The, before the actual plastic ono band uh, in, in anything that was that was an official plastic ono band release right yeah exactly yeah no, nothing major but that 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 is my biggest question now after fully digesting the all things box well, no i i mean i think this accumulation of detail is important that's that's you know kind of what we do is you you find all these little pieces and you put them together and then you consider them and you say okay well why why is this here why does you know what does this mean that these two things are sort of bumping into each other so hopefully that's right and then it all goes on our better answer for that you know well, and then it go it all goes on our list for the paperback. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, there isn't a Which is quite a list at this point. Yeah. No, there, no, will, there be will be a paperback be. eventually. Uh, so so it, so seriously, Ken, is is the paperback going to have like uh, additions to it that weren't in the uh, the the hardback? Oh no, absolutely. I mean, we're going to we're going to make a number of minor corrections, but then we're also going to add anything new that seems to be of use uh, from this uh, the experience of now having access to the the box. Yeah. 
I, I mean, I, I mean, you're I, learning from Hunter Davies. Just keep keep pumping out the same book with a new introduction every couple of years. Hopefully not. That, oh wow, that's yeah, sobering. No, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I'm sure I've got three different editions of um, Revolution in the head. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's right. He's still making editions, and sadly, he's not even with us anymore. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But um, it's it's interesting how um, I mean, different. All of the Beatles when they left their first forays into solo work post Beatles have uh, have a difference to to each of them where. Um, Obviously, you know, you've got the Ringo with the show tunes and then the uh, the incredible country album that he came out with. Uh, then you've got Paul's for half and half homely and but all himself sort of fallback. Then you've got John's uh, almost, as we would call it now, lo-fi approach with minimalism. And then this one with, uh, with George, you've got like, it's, it's almost... It, would it be right to say it's, it's almost bombastic, almost epic proportions of of arrangement and musicians? It's just an incredible difference between all of them, really. I think you know. That's yeah, the War and Peace. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They they are these albums are are reflections of their personalities, completely unfiltered. And you know, they, just just looking at that and looking at the result of all things must pass tells you a lot about George's personality, his perfectionism, and his, uh, you know, his desire to get things right. And his Klaus told me, you know, he said, you know, George maybe didn't know his plan. He didn't have a plan. Um, and he he said maybe if he'd known his plan better, he would have he would have proceeded differently. That, yeah. You know that that aspect of his personality that maybe we weren't fully aware of in the Beatles, we could you know maybe see some of the skill with something in Here Comes the Sun, but this this sort of uh, broad ranging, um, I mean the the country tunes, country style tunes on All Things Must Pass are a real surprise because you know it's it, I mean initially because where did that come from? You know, that, that's not something that we really had too much of an inkling of maybe, you know, some earlier, uh, Beatles tracks where they're, where they're doing covers, but, um, yeah, nothing, nothing on the, you know, the scale. So there's a lot in there and you realize just how complex George Harrison was, um, you know, how layered his approach was there. There are a lot of layers to these recordings, not just lyrically, but also musically. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I took note of um, of something else where you were talking about um, going to that. I mean, I mean, George, George was very inspired by by certain music. Where I I, I, mean, I noticed that you know Clapton, he'd sort of almost like be stopped in his tracks when a, when an album came out that jumped out at him, like "Are You Experienced" or "Music from the Big Pink." Uh, I mean, "Music from Big Pink" uh, mainly. I'm thinking that was a huge uh, inspiration to George and probably opened him up more where I, I know that he had 
a love for that sort of music and for the country and for folk and for all sorts of music and a wide-ranging like love of music but perhaps listening to an album like big pink where you've got all that mixture of of genre and sound probably showed to him that actually i could quite happily write one of those sort of songs and then write something completely different and that might have opened George's mind to that ability, that possibility of be, just throwing the net out and writing whatever he felt like, rather than feeling like he had to write specifically niche style of song. Well, I, I mean, I think if we look at uh, his 66 songs that didn't make the Beatles records that ended up on All Things Must Pass, I, I think we see that he he was already thinking well outside of what pop music could contain at that moment. I mean, Art of Dying and Isn't It a Pity are really not going to fit on Revolver. Um, and, you know, Within You, Without You is, again, just expanding the possibilities of what can fit on a, on a pop album in 1967. So, there, you know, George has a, has a great depth in himself musically already by this point. And John Barham, who is another person I interviewed, uh, who's the arranger on All Things Must Pass, wrote all the string scores um, and had worked on Let It Be as well. He and George had known each other since 1966. John was uh, Ravi Shankar's assistant in London at the time. And he told a story of how George would play him these albums of of experimental music or play him albums of, of blues and jazz. And so George, and, and he, you know, he presumed that George was inviting him into his, what he called his musical world. So George had a pretty wide ranging uh, taste in music already. And I think, I mean, the, the band really electrified a lot of people. That was just such a huge, huge shift for so many musicians at the time who heard that and were inspired and thought, oh, this is the next big thing. This is fantastic, right? And, you know, on a very practical level, I think that's probably the reason that George started playing his guitar through a Leslie is, is to kind of get that, some of that band sound. Um, and he's already in January 1969 trying to pull the Beatles in that direction in, you know, in certain ways. So, you know, just, just hearing that music had an effect on them, but also seeing Dylan with the band in at the end of 68 in Woodstock and spending time with them and seeing that sort of communal atmosphere and being accepted into that, uh, that kind of a, a group of people, that camaraderie had an effect on him. And seeing that a year later with Delaney and Bonnie, where he, you know, there's a large sort of group of characters and they're all contributing something and it's exciting. And it's not just four guys in a studio, you know, this sort of insular thing that the Beatles were, it's an expansive, you know, much, much more dynamic give and take interplay, which is, you know, ultimately what he brings to all things must pass. That's how he conducts these sessions. So you mentioned, isn't it a pity? Uh, what do you think a Beatles version of that song might, might have ended up sounding like obviously not version one which is this sort of hey jude redux but uh you know is it version two is it the demo version or would it have been something completely different i mean i think it would have been something completely different 
but you know and i you know i mentioned that in 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 the book i say you know i sort of uh meditate on that for a moment is you know is it gonna is it gonna be something with uh you know backing vocals and kind of angelic uh you know like here there and everywhere is it gonna be something more more indian influenced where you know he's he's got sitars or he's you know is is it even something else but the reality of it, of it is that it just wasn't going to make it. He already had three songs on Revolver. Um, they'd already done, you know, the strings. They'd done the sort of here, there, and everywhere backing vocals. They'd done, um, you know, all these different... So it would have been something entirely different. I, I can't say exactly what it would have been. But, I, you know, I think what it really comes down to is that song was just not going to fit on a 1966 Beatles album. Uh, it just, it was, yeah. What, what, what I wonder is why it didn't end up somewhere like on yellow submarine. You know, that's really a place that the Beatles needed more songs and they had them there, but maybe George already had too much with it's all too much. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I mean, they're, you know, they're, I think their heads were in a different place and, and, you know, he might've, he might've temporarily forgotten about that. He might've thought, well, you know, this isn't something that's, that's going to work at this point in time, he, you know, he talks in, in early 1970 about how he would, he would play songs for the Beatles that he thought they would get quickly. Cause he knew that he, they wouldn't have time. They wouldn't work on his songs for very long. And he knew it needed to click with them. And that's why all things must pass itself. Doesn't, doesn't get a proper recording by the Beatles. They didn't seem to get it. You know, you listen to those tapes and you can hear them sort of struggling to get through an arrangement to get through a, through a full take. And it just doesn't gel for them. And he knew that, and he knew they needed to move on and, and get to something else that they would really respond to, like, you know, For You Blue, which is not so complicated and Harrison-esque that, uh, that it's really confusing John and Paul. I mean, that's really what we're talking about, is John and Paul not connecting with the material. Um, right. Not necessarily rejecting it. I mean, they took, they took time and tried to work on some of these songs, at least, but if it didn't connect with them and they are by this point, the leaders of the band, then it's really not going to go anywhere. Although they did uh, do some pretty mean stuff during the get back sessions. Oh, sure. Uh, I mean, yes. that's, yeah, we can't deny that at all. Yeah. Let's give them credit. These are immature young men here. So, <laughs> <laughs> Was there any chance of you guys talking to Eric Clapton? I did. Uh, I, I have a, a very good connection with him and um, made an effort, uh, was unsuccessful. And then my connection came back and said, you know, Eric said all he's all he said uh, will be in the autobiography. So just go there. He's saying it better there anyway. And I said, OK. Roger. Yeah, but he, yes, he we had, attempted it right right he, after right after Phil Spector, we went right for him. Yeah, and and like I said, he's gone on the record a lot in the past fifty years, not just in his autobiography, but in a lot of different places about this album, about the people involved in the album. Um, so you know, it was, it was important to talk to the people who had not been talked to in any length before and and any detail 
So that's, you know, and that's, and that's, you know, people responded very generously with their time and with their memories and, and gave us great stories that, you know, we hadn't heard before. A lot of great detail that, you know, I was, I, I would just, you know, get off the phone with them and I would call Ken and I'd say, listen to what Chris Thomas just told me. Um, or, you know, listen to what Klaus just told me. So it's, it's, you know, stuff like that, which is like, oh, wow, I never expected to hear that. I never heard that story. Or that puts things in a new context. Or, oh, I have to question this, this assumption that I've held for all these years. Yeah. So, Klaus must have been a great uh, interview, though, because, I mean, interviews that I've caught with Klaus that I've listened to or, or seen, his uh, his memory seems to be absolutely spot on a lot of the time and he has some really good anecdotes that he comes out with every now and again oh it was it was fantastic um and i probably could have gone longer with him but we reached a point after about an hour and a half where i felt like we reached a really good good stopping point um kind of went off went out on a high note but lots of yeah lots of great stories good insight into what was happening with george and and phil specter and what was happening yeah. with the way George was crafting these sessions um, in that sense of, you know, how, how that partnership between producer and artist worked and, you know, what his, what his perspective on what was happening in the room. Um, you know, we talk a lot about George and Eric, but there's also, you know, there, there, there's a large cast of characters. There are many people involved here and how all those people interact is, uh, is interesting too. And, you know, since Klaus had known George for such a long time, almost 10 years at that point, he had, he had really great insights into where George was at that particular moment. So when, when you, when you were getting these, um, doing these interviews and then you, you got all the information together, were you then getting all that information and did you sort of like correlate what one person had said? to another and then that's how you 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 basically wrote the book did you just like see where all the things were aligned where everybody was saying almost the same sort of thing i mean how, how did you pick what went in there um actually did you pick anything that didn't go in there that people said i mean mostly what people told us we put in i, I mean ken can speak to that from the interviews he did um the first thing that I did was make a timeline uh, so that we'd have, you know, be able to keep track of things and then begin plugging in the stories. Um, and that timeline included the, you know, the dates of every session. So we could, we could sort of say, okay, well, what is this, what is this story talking about? Someone, you know, maybe have a vague memory of something and then how do you apply that to a, to a session? Um, but yeah, sure. And, and when you conduct these kind of interviews, <laughs> they, they're often repetitive. And so, you know, we do try to edit for conciseness, <laughs> you know, frankly. Sure. sure. Yeah. And, you, you know, you also have to balance conflicting memories um, against each other and, and try to find some sort of a middle ground. Or in some cases, you'll, you know, people are misremembering things or they're, they're applying a memory to a different session that you can then confirm with other, with other, you know, outside data. The one, the one that sticks out is the Phil Collins, famous Phil Collins story of playing congas 
and he's always applied that yeah. to art of dying but it it really seems like that's wawa um all the evidence points to it being wawa but you know to him it's art of dying that's the story he's told all these years but was it art of dying or wawa that george sent to him no he sent him with the infamous overdub he, he sent him art of dying yeah as the joke right um but the only song on the album that that has that has uh, congas on it is uh, is Wawa. So that's that's why that's why I came down on that as the uh, as the session he played on. But that, then Phil Phil said when he bought the album that he listened to the album and there were no sign of congas on the songs that he said that he remembered playing on. Right. So yeah. what what is the origins of that, by the way? I've heard a couple different versions. Phil's mom knew Ringo or Ringo's chauffeur. Is that the way he got into those sessions? Something to do with his driver. Yeah. Um, and he knew Phil Collins somehow. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So so you, you you've heard basically the same version. I've just I've just heard it told a couple of different ways. Right. Well, Phil's Phil's book, his Phil's autobiography, actually says that it was uh, he was friends with Ringo's driver, or and he found out that he was driving for Ringo, and mentioned that they wanted percuss- percussionist for a George Harrison session, and that's how he got involved. Is through that. I mean, that's what it says in Phil's autobiography. Right. Okay. Which, by the way, is I was I was embarrassed by how entertained I was by his autobiography. It's it's very uh, charming. Uh, if you haven't read it, I highly it's a quick read, and it's if if you grew up in the eighties, <laughs> you have, there'll be a lot to yep. uh, to uh, chew on there. Put it next to Elton's book. Oh. Right, right. <laughs> yes, yep. Well, Phil's book is an easier read than Elton's. Yes. Less drug abuse, for sure. Absolutely. Very very affable. It's a very affable book. (laughs) Now, our time constraint is kind of closing in on us. Um, So, Martin, um, could you tell us how to contact you and tell us about Pods Like Us? It's a shame we haven't got more time. I've only only done page one of page three of my notes. Guess we're gonna have to do a part two in a couple months, <laughs> or, or 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 later in the week or week after. <laughs> okay, you can uh, contact me through. Uh, I've got a website called themarvzone.org, and there's a contact uh, section on there. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, where you can just look for me and you'll find me. And and I'm. Am I allowed to leave your podcast email address in the description? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Podslikers at gmail.com. Um, Jason, tell us about producing the Beatles and how we can get in touch with you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's available wherever you find podcasts. Uh, you can also go to the website, producingthebeatles.com, and download the episodes directly from there. And I'm working on bonus episodes now. I know I've been saying that for a while, and I'm going to get angry emails saying, when's the next episode? But I promise they're in the works. And then season two is also in the works, and I have big ambitions for that. So 
um, that will be coming together as I finish them because, as you mentioned, I spend my entire life editing these things. I'm a, a one-man show. <laughs> For anybody interested, it's a really well-produced show, and it's it's brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Ken, tell us about um, everything Fab Four and your other books. Sure. So people can find me at everythingfab4.com, and uh, you know we're working on uh, some some new projects that we'll be able to tell people more about shortly. But for right now, mum's the word. Um, can I ask you? Did you interview um, LB yet? As in um, LB. He dropped an album out yesterday, and he was in Fleetwood Mac. Oh, no, I haven't talked to him yet, but uh, he's, uh, I have a number of interesting guests this semester on my podcast, Lindsey Buckingham, uh, along with such a strange assortment, including Weird Al, Margaret Cho, Ed Begley, uh, David Duchovny. Um, these are the folks who want to talk about about the Beatles, you know, it's uh, it's kind of bizarre when you look at it. And apparently, um, uh, according to my publicist, Haley Mills uh, may join uh, this bizarre group. So, uh, you know, a splendid time is guaranteed for all. You have to ask David Duchovny about his appearance in the chair. That's a great series, by the way. Real? Oh, well, you and I must uh, talk about this offline. I, I think I beg to differ. Uh, oh really? Uh, that, well, you're you're you may be a little bit too close to it, but that's probably the problem. <laughs> I'd, I'd be interested in hearing uh, Haley Mills' take on the soundtrack for, uh, you know, like "Love in the Open Air" and oh, I can't remember the name of the film now. Ken, "The Family Way." Yeah, that's it. "The Family Way." Yeah, that she was in. Yeah. Um. Ed, tell us about when they was fab and how to find you. We weekly weekly podcast. So we have five separate podcast hosts here. This is almost like one of Martin's shows, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. We, the the easiest way to find us is on our Facebook group. You can email at us at uh, when they was fab at gmail New episode drops every Sunday night slash Monday morning, depending on where you are in the world, and. Uh, John Stone and I are looking forward to continuing our ongoing, never-ending series of reviews because, well, the Beatles just keep dropping stuff. And are, are you done the All Things Must Pass stuff? We just we just this week we finished the All Things Must Pass. We're going. We actually get to talk about something else for another couple of weeks until Ringo's EP and then uh, Let It Be comes out. And have you heard the box yet, Ed? Uh, which box? Which box are we referring to? The Let It Be box? Yes. Not in its entirety. Okay, I'll get. I'll help you out. Fair enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so, um, our email address is currently down. Um, let's just say somebody forgot the password. Um, <laughs> which is also the access to our YouTube account. <laughs> So, oh, yeah. um, this may be going up on my 
YouTube channel as an audio-only show. Um, if you want to send me an email, I suppose you can send it to Beatles Radio Show at iCloud.com or Solo Beatles Podcast at gmail.com. Um, that's about it. Um, so this has been an episode of P2 Podcast Clues and to all to three of my our guests, we'd have you anytime. Well, thanks for having us. <laughs> no, you're welcome.